to the great work radio program. The great work radio and blog are features of Jesse Ward's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. This is episode 6 of the Charming Intention series on the great work. Hello and welcome to the Great Work radio program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a PhD candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two-day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. Nicola Pieperkoff of the University of Paris, Pantheon Sorbonne, gave a very interesting talk entitled Natural Magic and Divine Word in Gian Bologna's Statue of Mercury, which is the famous statue of Mercury that's held in the Bargello in Florence. With Nicola Pieperkoff, and he's a PhD candidate at the Sorbonne, and uh, the title of he's working on mythological and allegorical uh, subject matter in the late 16 and from the late 16 to the late 17th century. And the title of this paper, I can read it to you Et procul ingenuem ex oculis evanui auram, natural magic and divine world in Gian Bologna's statue of Mercury. Here you have it in front of you. Oh, you changed uh, um, Latin. I can um, see. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, just one question, how can I put it in the slideshow? From beginning. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, um, this is our last presentation for today, so I hope that I will keep you awake. <laughs> um, uh, I've uh, actually changed uh, my quotation to Illa Fretus Agit Ventus et Turbida Tranet Nubila. Uh, which is a quotation from Virgil's Aeneid, the fourth chant, uh, which translates roughly, with that wand, he commands the winds and puts away the troubled clouds. I will um, develop on it later, for it's a very uh, interesting quotation in order to understand what uh, the form and the meaning of Giambologna's Mercury is like. Uh, I will speak about divine word and natural magic in uh, um, Giambologna's statue of Mercury, but this paper, so this paper does not aim to examine the technical execution of the statue. Uh, very much talked of, even by its contemporaries, Mercury is highly regarded as a virtuoso broadcast accomplishment because of its complicated posture requiring a well-calculated standing point 
and because of its high level of detail, it was indeed casted in a single mold with little or no additions. However famous, not much has been gathered as to its actual meaning that seemed to significantly change from the first version of the statue, uh, dated 1563, actually that one, um, and to the last executed at about 1580 and then copiously multiplied. In fact, uh, Jumbo and his Mercury was a matter of nearly 20 years of elaboration, and before proceeding to the final form and its meaning, we will examine and try to reconstruct its semantic past. The first version of the statue uh, was a commission by the papal legate Pier Donato Cesi. The documentation is still conserved, and it points out its actual function. Mercury was supposed to be put on a column in the University of Bologna as a symbol of reason and education, called Arginasio. The place itself was convenient for such a work. Mercury is described by Posidonius as a god of Palestra, and as well as Hercules, his statue was worshipped in the Gymnasium, literally the place of the naked, dedicated by the ancients to physical but also theoretical and philosophical education. By analogy, Mercury was there to signify the modern kind of gymnasium, an university where the messenger of God himself descends from the skies in order to bring the divine knowledge. The, pro the project was uh, never completed, however, and the statue that is displayed today in the Museo Civico of Bologna has to be taken for a very finished modello. Its examine also suggests that Gian Bologna has taken some liberty in the interpretation of the subject, supposed to represent Hermes Hermeneus, or Medicurius, messenger and interpreter of the gods, whose definitions can be found in Lilio Giraldi's The Deis Gentium. Its meaning is essentially derived from Hesiod's Theogonia. Mercury, with no wings on his helm or heels, details, however, that will be added later, as you see, uh, instead of pointing the sky, see, seems to seize by the palm of his hand an object that is now lost. With his other hand, he grasps something that is usually interpreted as a rest of a caduceus. With um, a f uh, an anonymous Florentine copy from the 16th or uh, the early 17th century, puts in his raised hand the torch of wisdom, and in his other hand, the caduceus. However tempting, this copy seems to be more of an interpretation because of its zephyr pedestal, an addition that won't appear before the last version of the statue. We can suggest that originally, Mercury carried in his raised hand the caduceus pointing the sky, a widespread iconography in contemporary engravings, especially um, northern, in northern Europe. In his lower hand, the, uh, the object can be identified as a scroll, symbol of words and letters, and very convenient for an university. This hypothesis is based on the fact that the so-called handle was never drilled, nor it carries marks of adaptation to another element. Either it has never been finished, which is a hypothesis, or it is simply not what it seems to be. And this hypothesis also explains the lack of wings. According to Hesiod, Mercury received his caduceus, his mark of distinction from the gods, complaining of not having cult and function, 
The caduceus was given to him as a professional gift and instrument. It is with the caduceus that Mercury flies and travels to the god, to the earth and to hell, in order to inform the gods, bring their words to men and transport the human soul to the shadows. In that case, instead of a descending Mercury bringing the divine word, Jambolonia is more of an ascending Mercury, a metaphor for human study, both philosophical and theological, bringing the spirit of man closer to God, which actually the statue represents, we have the Orbis Terrarum, then the Mercury is flying with Sadducees to Hetzelum, the sky. As to the formal invention, Jambolonia was very well acquainted with Roman decoration, having spent himself two years in Rome. There can be a seizing parallel between his flying Mercury and Raphael's one painted on a lunette in the Villa Farnesina. Another possible source of inspiration is, of course, um, the statue of Perseus by Benvenuto Cellini, the most celebrated Florentine sculptor of his time, excluding Michelangelo. Cellini's invention was copied indeed by William van Tethod, who transformed it into a flying Mercury Agrifontes, the killer of Argus, at about 1550. It is possible <laughs> that Jambologna and Tetrode, both Flemish of origin, were in contact and shared a common admiration for Cellini's work. The second version of the statue was commissioned uh, soon after the first one. I will not show you uh, now the second version, you will understand uh, just a little bit with why. Uh, it was sent by Cosmo Medici in 1565 as a diplomatic gift, according to Giorgio Vasari and Borghini's report, to the Holy Emperor Maximilian II Habsburg for, his marriage, uh, for the marriage of his daughter Giovanna to Francesco di Medici, the Grand Duke-to-be. Derived from a medal that you see now, on the verse of which Maximilian was emblematically associated with the pagan god, the medal was executed by Leone Leone and is dated uncertainly in the 1550s, it was supposed to express the situation of the duchy in the political alliance. Indeed, the Holy Emperor and the Florentine prince both share the same emblematic symbol. Messenger of Jupiter, Mercury was associated with the empire as a well-calculated political insignia, he embodies the German aspiration for divine investiture, which the Papacesarist dogma reiterated during the Gregorian reform with the episode in Canossa forbids. As Mercury, though, the Emperor is himself the legate of God, carrying directly his word to the people without the need of any church. On the other hand, for the Medici family, Mercury is a somewhat of a rhetorical emblem, patron of physicians and confused with Asclepios, both in Boccaccio's Genealogia and Ficino's translation of the Corpus Hermeticum, he refers to the linguistic origin of the family Medicus. A 14th century ancestor and founder of the dynasty was actually an apothecary, a memory that had never faded and was still conserved in the familiar coats of arms whose dots represent actually pigs. Given that, Mercury god of embassy, described as such by Piero Valeriano, according to whom, in ancient times, the bringers of negotiation were called caduceatores, is sent in embassy to the Holy Court from a prince whose emblem is Mercury to an emblem uh, to, to uh, an emperor whose emblem is also Mercury. No doubt, in this political mind game, there is a great deal of sarcasm. For Mercury, as well as the messenger of Jupiter, is also his servant. So, who is actually the servant of whom? 
by order of feudal subordination, Cosimo is, by the marriage, at the service of Maximilian, who is himself detaining his powers from God. Nevertheless, even the most humble prince is ordained by divine sovereignty and is himself a Mercury messenger of Jupiter. For the investment of this particular meaning, the statue of Gian Bologna was uh, also formally transformed. Uh, conserved presumably in the Kunstkammer of the Kunsthistorisches Museum at Vienna, even though specialists argue if this exact statue is the one sent to Maximilian, its posture is now much more clear. The finger pointing the sky is distinct, and the caduceus in the lower hand can be materially attested, even if it's lost now, by traces of broken metal still visible on the handle. The detail that we should examine and underline is a pointing finger. Similar to the one on the Leone Leonis medal, it has nevertheless, uh, in a strictly Florentine context, a distinct religious meaning, same as John the Baptist's, Moses's, and even the one of the Creator on the 16th chapel singing, it refers to the connection of man to God. John the Baptist was the last of prophets, Moses is responsible for the old alliance, and the Creator created by the same finger, humankind. Even the mirror position of the hands can be traced as far as Raphael's John the Baptist, where, of course, the Laocon is also implied, with one finger, the saint shows the true meaning of his words, and with the other, a banner with the written ones. So, in our case, the pointing finger of Mercury, same as John the Baptist's, is clearly a mark of a Christian, a Christian allegorization derived both from political decorum and Ficinus' interpretation of all, all Mercuries as ancestors to the Trismegistus. Uh, Angelus Theon, or Logios, Mercury is actually a syncretic Neoplatonic deity where all forms and all contradictory meanings coming from the ancient sources collide in one single and Christian entity announcing by its hieroglyphical writing the words of Christ. And I um, translate for you uh, a piece of Pigeno's uh, Argumentum. Uh, Mercurius Trismegistus is the first author of theology, Orpheus is the second, Aglopheum is the one that, uh, that initiated Orpheus to the mysteries. His successor was Pythagoras, whom succeeded Philolaus, from who derives our divine Plato. He gave the Egyptian letters from where the ancient Greeks transferred in ancient Greek the Egyptian mysteries, the argument of his work, is the power and the knowledge of God. Thus, annunciator of both Plato and Christ, Mercury Trismegistus was not only a deity, but also an author of theological wisdom. Ficinus' texts explain why it was actually possible for a papal legate to commission a Mercury in the first place, and maybe why the initial project has been abandoned Giambologna gives to his Bologna version the meaning of a simple servant and messenger of Jupiter, and consequently he seems to be much more attentive to his Christian meaning in the second version. The third one, dated at about 1580, is commissioned by Francesco di Medici, uh, is both a sign of uh, the success of the second version and the, and the particular interest that the Medici family bestowed on hermetic and mercurial iconography commonly regarded as um, similar to the second one 
Uh, it shows, however, a pedestal uh, with Zephyr blowing wind underneath the heels of the flying god. A pictorial quotation for Virgil's Aeneid, the detail is not to be taken lightly as it joins to the Christian meaning of the second Mercury, his description in the Aeneid. Um, then he, uh, Jupiter orders to Mercury, go and summon Zephyr and glide on your wings. According to Virgil, Mercury commands the winds, in our case, Zephyr. Those verses are not only useful for the comprehension of the pedestal, but also for the understanding of the new meaning, this time highly neoplatonic, infusing the entire figure. In fact, Zephyr and Mercury have already been interpreted as a spirit of man ignited by celestial knowledge in an enigmatic album by Achilles Bocchius, Symboliparum Questionem. In addition to that, another passage from the same chapter of Virgil's Aeneid had grown to a great popularity and was quoted and explained by both Boccaccio e Piccino, Illa Freto Agi Vento, Seturni Vetranat Nubiva, with that wont he uh, commands the winds and chases away the bad clouds. According to Boccaccio's Genealogia, Mercury is somewhat of a doctor of humors. By thrusting away the bad clouds, he clears the body of bad humors and restores peace to the mind. That meaning has already been used in, Medi in the Medician context in the Botticelli's Primavera, uh, where Mercury chases away the clouds coming from the upper left corner of the panel. Mercurius Mediceus Medicus is also present in Ficinus Argumentum, where the cloud motif is used to allegorize the shrouds of darkness that envelop the human mind, unable to see the superior nature of things. By bringing the Gnosis, Mercury, Mercury Trismegistus makes the veil disappear and thus the true meaning of the divine word is exposed. So, different but not incompatible with Hermes Hermeneus and Logios, the third Mercury is not an interpreter but a commander. His finger points to the source of knowledge which, if exposed, will unveil the secrets of the creation and of the universe and we can already see Mercury commanding over the winds with his magic wand. Nevertheless, the putic inaction uh, of knowledge was not an easy subject to discuss at that time. Authorized and connected to Mercury by a very well-known text from the Latin writer Amianus Marcellinus, according to whom Mercury is the active intellect who helps things to change and to whom even the Roman emperors made prayers late at night, the active knowledge is sometimes described as natural magic. This kind of magic, of which uh, the Corpus Hermeticum is the inspiration in the Bible at that time in the Medician court, is theorized also slightly later in the De Magia of Giordano Bruno in a very particular manner. In 1590, ten years after the completion of Museo Bargello's version of Mercury, Bruno uses the term Trismegistus in order to name the enchanters. According to him, all magic workers are actually children of Mercury. Their goal is to distillate the Gnosis and then to put it in action by pronouncing the word of power that will unleash the natural magic and transform, according to the laws of nature, the nature itself in the same way as the Logos, or God, in his verbal and immaterial form, had done when the creation was completed in the first place. After that digression, we will go back to our statue to underline the order of attributes. The pointing finger suggests here the divine knowledge, the divine knowledge and the caduceus is putting in action. The fact is that the upper end of the caduceus 
is uh, indeed placed on the same exact level as the head of Mercury, the place of the mind. Connecting the mind to the hand, the caduceus is presumed as a magic wand that restores harmonia on microcosmical body level and on natural elementary level. Maybe for that reason the Roman copy of the Bergello statue is out of the fountain in the Villa Medici and commissioned by the uh, Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Ferdinando di Medici is put in such a symbolic location, making the transition between the domain of the man, the villa, and the domain of nature and wildness, the gardens. He commands the winds and pierces the clouds reflected on the water. Water and air, two highly significant elements in the Hermetic interpretation of Neoplatonism, especially in the Core Cosmo, are associated with God's blow and with Hule, prime matter of which all men and things were created. Mercury, or the Divine Word, operates the generation of matter with his magic wand, a caduceus which description in Macrobius' commentary is transformed into the prime instrument of metamorphosis and creation. Thus, Mercury seems to be the vehicle of divine word in both directions. First of all, he descends it from the skies and makes of it an hermeneia, an interpretation to the humankind. But also, he personifies the power of human word, the descendant of his hermeneia on nature. In that case, divine word and natural magic, both founded on the logos and the true meaning of things, collide into a syncretic figure that embodies both the Renaissance obsession with a direct and intellectual connection with God, and at the same time the will to imitate the creation itself. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. When I see John Bologna's sculpture, I often think that uh, Gombrich's discussion of the Eros and Piccadilly were changed, you know, over, over the time and so on. But maybe somebody wants to come with a, with a question before I will come with another one. Alex. Thanks, Robert. paper. Um, I wonder if you just clarify something for me. You, you, you were using a source of the 1490s to provide an interpretation of sculptures from the 1560s to the 80s. Um, and I, I wonder if you think that's appropriate, particularly given that Ficino's status in the latter part of the century was not exactly straightforward, even in the Medici court, where you know, certainly natural magic is, is discussed. So I, I wonder if you could, if you could yeah. elaborate on that. Yeah, thank you for that question, which is very pertinent. Uh, actually, uh, Martino Ficino, was uh, not very popular in the 16th century in the Medicean court, but uh, in the 15th century he uh, traced uh, what is called a philosophia prisca, and even if his exact ideas were not taken uh, in their exact way, his conception of philosophia prisca is really there, and actually what I quoted was the founding words of what the Philosophia Prisca is, that in the ancient text we can, found, we can find the truth and the uh, annunciation of the Christian, uh, the Christian meaning, so the Bible in a, in a way, in a manner, can be extended to the um, how can I say it, um, the study of philosophy. And that uh, is what actually humanists do even in the Medicean court in the 16th century. I mean, if I can add something, Ficino didn't get translated either, as mm -hmm. much as I know. What? Ficino. 
yeah. didn't get translated in Italian. No, I so it so. would be quite difficult for Gian Bologna to have access to it. Or exactly, exactly. But this is why uh, actually I've uh, I've put always from whom the commission was. Uh, if his commissioners were really educated, well-educated men who wanted to put a very personal meaning in a form that you see is quite extensible because between the first statue and the last statue uh, the formal invention is not so much. The statues resemble uh, each other but it is the concept and the personalized and particular meaning that the commissioner wanted to infuse in the statue that changed actually his form. So. Uh, I interpreted the last one in a very uh, hermetic and very uh, chemical even manner uh, because, as uh, Signora Leopardi said, um, yeah, Francesco Di Medici was a great admirer of, of alchemy and of esotericism. He's only coming in and completely illustrated exactly. the chemical images. Yeah, I, I wonder whether there isn't, in fact, a, a Christ connotation there. Because of course the, um, the the hermetic the hermetic texts were written in the early Christian era. <coughs> this is why they have Christian ideas within them that Ficino picked up on and thought they were precursors of Christianity, whereas they are written under Christian influences in North Africa somewhere. So I wonder uh, uh, the whole idea of the Logos, of course, feeds directly into Christian theology and that of St John. And, I should imagine that the Cardinal would be quite happy with that figure. He would find exactly. that transgressing because by then, you know, we're starting to come up to the Counter Reformation well and truly. And um, these, they had to be very careful, of course, in those years with this kind of paganistic imagery. But I mean, he does carry Christian connotations, and if there is an alchemical context, even more so because Mercury and Christ are interchangeable in alchemy from the 16th century onwards, from the 1550s, again, with a Rosarian philosophy. Exactly. So I, I myself have a feeling that's probably quite a Christianized image. It's a, it is a really Christianized image. Yes. There is a very uh, strict Christianized, uh, Christian interpretation in both Marcello Ficino's uh, work and, in, uh, and even in Boccaccio's Genealogia, which is from the 14th century, and which, which is very, uh, very red and extremely popular for the 15th and 16th century. As to the alchemical uh, connotations, they come uh, especially from Macrobius commentary on the Cadiceus, on the Cadiceus, where uh, actually if you see Michael Meyer's uh, very well-known engraving where Mercury um, is dividing um, moon, the crescent moon and the sun as God divides uh, actually light from uh, for a day, day and night. Well, Macrobius, of course, fed into the whole Ovid moralis, Moralisatus, exactly. the Ovid Moralise of the medieval period. And um, that, of course, Christianizes all the pagan gods. Exactly. And I wonder if there is some kind of revival of that at this period, too. Well, um, l'Ovid Moralise uh, was very, very popular, especially in Dutch and Flemish culture at that time. Um, all paintings that I'm working on from the 16th century, especially the landscape paintings, 
that include m uh, the story of Mercury and Argus, for, for example, always use le vide moralisé. Yeah. But uh, in the Florentine context, uh, actually they were going back to uh, classical texts and um, in, how can I say it, uh, le vide moralisé was uh, supposed to be found as a very polluted text, mm -hmm. very polluted by um, the, uh, the medieval... The, yes, exactly. Yes. Any more questions? No, well then, I mean, I think what we should all do is thanking our speaker, mm -hmm. we... Thanking all the speakers of the panel, thanking all the speakers of the day, and the organizers as well, I mean, who have so far organized a wonderful uh, conference, and I'm sure tomorrow it will be as exciting. I think it starts tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and we all look forward to see you then. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio program. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse Wu's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H dot com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program. Search for the name Jesse War to download the great work radio programs from the iTunes Store.